Chapter forty three of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Antony Trollope. Chapter forty three. Real Love. He is looking awfully cut up, Mrs. Houghton said to her cousin. He is one of the most infernal fools that ever I came across in my life, said Jack. I don't see that he is a fool at all, any more than all men are fools. There isn't one among you is ever able to keep his little troubles to himself. You are not a bit wiser than the rest of them yourself. I haven't got any troubles of that sort. You haven't a wife, but you'll be forced into having one before long, and when you like another man's wife you can't keep all the world from knowing it. All the world may know everything that has taken place between me and Lady George, said Jack. Of course I like her. I should say, rather. And so do you. No, I don't, sir. I don't like her at all. She is a foolish, meaningless little creature, with nothing to recommend her but a pretty colour, and she has cut me because her husband will come and pour out his sorrow into my ears. For his sake I used to be good to her. I think she is the sweetest human being I ever came across in my life, said Jack enthusiastically. Everybody in London knows that you think so and that you have told her your thoughts. Nobody in London knows anything of the kind. I never said a word to her that her husband mightn't have heard. Jack! I never did. I wonder you are not ashamed to confess such simplicity even to me. I am not a bit ashamed of that, though I am ashamed of having in some sort contributed to do her an injury. Of course I love her. Rather, as I said before. Of course you intended that I should. I intended that you should amuse yourself. As long as you are good to me, I shall be good to you. My dear Adelaide, nobody can be so grateful as I am, but in this matter the thing hasn't gone quite as you intended. You say that she is meaningless. Vapid, flabby, childish, and innocent as a baby. Innocent, I am sure she is. Vapid and flabby she certainly is not. She is full of fun, and quite as witty as a woman should be. You always liked fools, Jack. Then how did I come to be so very fond of you? In answer to this she merely made a grimace at him. I hadn't known her three days, continued he, before I began to feel how impossible it would be to say anything to her that ought not to be said. That is just like the world all over, said Mrs. Houghton. When a man really falls in love with a woman, he always makes her such a goddess that he doesn't dare to speak to her. The effect is that women are obliged to put up with men who ain't in love with them, either that or vouchsafe to tell their own little story, when, lo, they are goddesses no longer. I dare say it's very ridiculous, said Jack, in a mooning, despondent way. I dare say I'm not the man I ought to be after the advantages I have had in such friends as you and others. If you try to be severe to me, I'll quarrel with you. Not severe at all. I'm quite in earnest. A man, and a woman too, have to choose which kind of role shall be played. There is innocence and purity, combined with going to church and seeing that the children's faces are washed. The game is rather slow, but it lasts a long time, and leads to great capacity for digesting your dinner in old age. You and I haven't gone in for that. Do you mean to say that I am not innocent? Then there is the devil with all his works, which I own are for the most part pleasant works to me. I have always had a liking for the devil. Jack! 
Of all the saints going, he is certainly the most popular. It is pleasant to ignore the commandments and enjoy the full liberty of a debauched conscience. But there are attendant evils. It costs money and wears out the Constitution. I should have thought that you had never felt the latter evil. The money goes first, no doubt. This, however, must surely be clear. A man should make up his mind and not shilly-shally between the two. I should have thought that you had made up your mind very absolutely. I thought so too, Adelaide, till I knew Lady George Germain. I'll tell you what I feel about her now. If I could have any hope that he would die, I would put myself into some reformatory to fit myself to be her second husband. Good heavens! That is one idea that I have. Another is to cut his throat and take my chance with the widow. She is simply the only woman I ever saw that I have liked all round. You come and tell me this, knowing what I think of her? Why shouldn't I tell you? You don't want me to make love to you. But a woman never cares to hear all these praises of another. It was you who began it, and if I do speak of her, I shall tell the truth. There is a freshness of uncut flowers about her. Pshaw! Worms and grubs! And when she laughs, one dreams of a chaste Venus. My heavens, Jack, you should publish all that. The dimples on her cheeks are so alluring that I would give my commission to touch them once with my finger. When I first knew her, I thought that the time would come when I might touch them. Now I feel that I would not commit such an outrage to save myself from being cashiered. Shall I tell you what you ought to do? Hang myself. Just say to her all you have said to me. You would soon find that her dimples are not more holy than another's. You think so? Of course I think so. The only thing that puzzles me is that you, Jack de Baron, should be led away to such idolatry. Why should she be different from others? Her father is a money-loving, selfish old reprobate who was born in a stable. She married the first man that was brought to her, and has never cared for him because he does not laugh and dance and enjoy himself after her fashion. I don't suppose she is capable of caring very much for anybody, but she likes you better than any one else. Have you seen her since the row at Mrs. Jones's? No. You have not been, then? No. Why not? Because I don't think she would wish to see me, said Jack. All that affair must have troubled her. I don't know how that is. She has been in town ever since, and he certainly went down to Brotherton. He has come up, I suppose, in consequence of this row between the dean and his brother. I wonder what really did happen. They say that there was a scuffle, and that the parson had very much the best of it. The police were sent for, and all that kind of thing. I suppose the Marquis said something very rough to him. Or he to the Marquis, which is rather more likely. Well, good day, Jack. They were now at the house door in Berkeley Square. Don't come in, because Houghton will be here. Then the door was opened. But take my advice, and go and call in Munster Court at once. And believe me, when you have found out what one woman is, you have found out what most women are. There are no such great differences. It was then six o'clock, and he knew that in Munster Court they did not dine till near eight. There was still time with a friend so intimate as he was, for what is styled a morning call. The words which his cousin had spoken had not turned him, had not convinced him. Were he again tempted to speak his real mind about this woman, as he had spoken in very truth his real mind, he would still express the same opinion. 
She was to him like a running stream to a man who had long bathed in stagnant waters. But the hideous doctrines which his cousin had preached to him were not without their effect. If she were as other women, meaning such women as Adelaide Houghton, or if she were not, why should he not find out the truth? He was well aware that she liked him. She had not scrupled to show him that by many signs. Why should he scruple to say a word that might show him how the wind blew? Then he remembered a few words which he had spoken, but which had been taken so innocently that they, though they had been meant to be mischievous, had become innocent themselves. Even things impure became pure by contact with her. He was sure, quite sure, that that well-known pupil of Satan, his cousin, was altogether wrong in her judgment. He knew that Adelaide Houghton could not recognize and could not appreciate a pure woman. But still, still, it is so poor a thing to miss your plum because you do not dare to shake the tree. It is especially so if you are known as a professional stealer of plums. When he got into Piccadilly, he put himself into a cab and had himself driven to the corner of Munster Court. It was a little street, gloomy to look at, with dingy doors and small houses, but with windows looking into St. James Park. There was no way through it, so that he who entered it must either make his way into some house or come back. He walked up to the door, and then, taking out his watch, saw that it was half-past six. It was almost too late for calling. And then this thing that he intended to do required more thought than he had given it. Would it not be well for him that there should be something holy, even to him, in spite of that devil's advocate, who had been so powerful with him? So he turned, and walking slowly back towards Parliament Street, got into another cab and was taken to his club. It has come out, said Major McMickmack to him, immediately on his entrance, that when the dean went to see Brotherton at the hotel, Brotherton called Lady George all the bad names he could put his tongue to. I dare say he is blackguard enough for anything, said de Baron. Then the old dean took his lordship in his arms and pitched him bang into the fireplace. I had it all from the police myself. I always liked the dean. They say he is as strong as Hercules, continued McMickmack, but he is to lose his deanery. Gammon! You just ask any of the fellows that know. Fancy a clergyman pitching a marquis into the fire. Fancy a father not doing so if the marquis spoke ill of his daughter, said Jack de Baron. End of chapter 43